Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about the mounting worries of a recession, the steady rise of interest rates, and how to identify the right fund manager to run your investments, with Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Ian Aylward, Head of Manager Selection and Responsible Investing, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you're new to investing, want to know more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. It may be summer, but the world's economy and capital markets are not taking a break. So we've got lots to talk about again this week. China and Taiwan, a sharp rally in stocks, the latest on the outlook for inflation, and some wisdom on warning signs to look out to from one of our star fund pickers and our head of responsible investing, Ian Aylward. So, Will, I think we should probably begin with China. The papers have been full of stories of tensions rising again over Taiwan. Are there any implications for investors to think about here? Hi, Sarah. Uh, hello, Ian. Hello, everybody. Yes, you're all sizzling in relative uh, relative comfort. I am not just as just as say as an opener. I, I, my office is is like the seventh circle of hell. But I hope you're all managing some air conditioning. I know some of you are in the offices today. I think the first thing to sort of point out here, the first and most obvious point that we always make is ignore all the geostrategic know-it-alls and talking heads who are now dominating the airwaves again, telling us the precise reaction function of President Xi and so on. Uh, we're all too grizzled and long in the tooth to fall for that particular snake oil, I'm sure. Um, we did write about the potential for this uh, situation to escalate along with Ukraine in our 2022 outlook document. Many others did too, to be honest. This was one of the things that people looked at. Um, however, that should not be taken, like I say, as evidence of, um, sort of sophisticated, super supernatural prescience. I think the other couple of points to make, there are paths ahead where these tensions become seriously disruptive, uh, particularly if restrictions are buttered over a kind of less insignificant proportion of, you know, China-Taiwanese trade. If you start getting into some of the sort of tech supply chain, that becomes very damaging, not just to China, but the world. Point three, and this is sort of slightly different, but Taiwan is one of the kind of very, very, very few, like a handful of post-war kind of economic miracles that are described. You know, these are countries that have managed to kind of surge through the sort of infamous middle income trap where many economies become trapped and beyond to ascend to the kind of global economic top table. Now, China would obviously right now dearly love to repeat this miracle kind of on a per capita basis, obviously, but with a different institutional recipe, preserving the Chinese Communist Party's role at the centre of everything. For what it's worth, the building blocks for Taiwan's incredible post-war performance remain, of course, hotly debated, but very interesting in this whole context of, uh, you know, what model ultimately wins and gets, uh, you know, makes it through those um, those difficult waters in terms of middle-income traps for emerging economies. Okay. And Will, you and the team have been saying for some time now that China's policymakers already have plenty on at the moment. Maybe you could tell us a bit more about what they're thinking about. Yes. Well, the property market continues to look eerily similar to, you know, Japan's infamous property market bubble pre the slump uh, in the late 1980s, at least in certain sort of uh, respects. Combine that with some continuing concerns on COVID and you have, like you say, you know, you have a busy intray. Remember, China's policymakers, and I think this is always a point that you, you must make, is that, you know, they have much to congratulate themselves 
over for the last few decades, you know, the scale of poverty reduction is literally unprecedented. However, the policy recipe for the success in the next stage, and I guess that's what I was hinting at last uh, in the last question, it is not the same. Um, this is why the this stage of economic development has tripped up so many before. The requirements of society, the state, the legal and other institutions that make up a country, it's proved an extremely challenging mix to kind of fulfill and get it exactly right in the past. And you've got to add in that cultural context as well. Yeah, lots of challenges. And I guess that's like many of the world's policymakers at the moment. Looking at the data this week, and it does suggest that one of those challenges may be starting to ease a little. We had the US inflation data come out, and it was a bit lower than forecast and appears to be steadying, which in turn caused risky assets to rise. What can you tell us about this? Uh, yes. I mean, I guess one swallow does not make a summer. That's a bit of an inappropriate analogy to use in the middle of a massive heat wave, I guess. But we should be aware, wary of sort of, you know, careful of overinterpreting one data point. I think that's really the, the, the point, particularly when speaking of a phenomenon as difficult to capture accurately, um, as inflation, you know, almost the decimal places are irrelevant, uh, with a lot of inflation data. I don't, uh, and also, look, I don't want to be a total buzzkill. It was good news. We need inflation to come down. Here was a seemingly rare but you know piece of good news on that front something to provide a little sucker to the many you know suffering inflation's kind of malign effects particularly um, those lower income households however on the flip side of the argument and the reason still to worry a bit more about inflation and this is with reference to the US so therefore you know the global economy's problem not so specific to the UK UK's got its own set of problems but wages are heating up on a couple of metrics that people are paying attention to or at least they're they're going sideways at best and heating up at worst. And, you know, the measures that the Federal Reserve look at will still be giving them cause for concern enough to keep everyone on their toes for a while. But I think the point that, you know, you've seen from stock markets this week that, um, you know, those arguing that a soft landing is likely the most likely scenario, they got a bit of a boost from some of the data in the last couple of weeks. And that's helped stocks who, you know, many investors are seemingly that's allowing them to kind of eliminate some of the risks that they perceived a month ago, or at least minimize some of the risks that they perceived a month ago. They perceive a slightly friendlier Fed chairman, whether that's right or wrong, we shall see. And or whether that matters, you know, this is a Federal Reserve, not just an individual. Um, so there's a lot up for grabs at the moment. It's a very, very interesting and confusing investment backdrop, which I guess is a nice segue into Ian and all the experts and specialists uh, he represents and hires on our behalf. Excellent. Very nice segue, Will. Yeah, so actually, Ian, I was really looking forward to this part of today's podcast. We want to delve into some of the warning signs for investors in funds during this really unfamiliar investing backdrop that we find ourselves looking at at the moment. So Ian, you and the team have got an amazing record at managing to prevent issues with funds before they happen. Woodford is probably the most famous example of a disaster dodged because of the quality of due diligence process. But however, there are plenty more examples. My first question to you is really, what in your experience tends to be the first warning sign in a fund, which could be about to disappoint? We know that past performance is a poor indicator, but what can we as individuals do to keep an eye on instead? Yeah. Hi, Sarah. And hi, Will. I too am cooking at home today. It is another hot one. Yeah. <laughs> as you say there, Sarah, you know, past performance it is very much, I guess, akin to looking in the rearview mirror of one's car. It's not really going to help you too much with what is to come. So, you know, what do we do? And can individuals take any any pointers from that? We actually formalise 
our approach in five key areas. We name those the five P's because they all happen to start with the letter P. And we think it's these areas that you know, one should keep an eye on. Um, as such, you know, it's worth all investors bearing in these in mind, I think. If we see strength in these five areas, then we have a greater expectation, greater comfort of future outperformance. So I'll probably ought to tell you what these uh, five P's are, what they stand for. Parent, people, philosophy, process and, and performance. So a quick word on each, perhaps. Parent is the, the group, the entity, the fund management firm that uh, we're interacting with, that we're employing to run the money. People is the individuals at that firm, not just the actual fund manager themselves, but the support team uh, around them and the investment team. Uh, philosophy is perhaps the most amorphous of these. It, it is really what is the market inefficiency the manager is looking to to um, to harness, to exploit. You know, why be active? You know, why not just 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 be passive, if you like. Um, the penultimate one process is, I guess, the day-to-day -day application of that philosophy by those people in their um, investment activity. You know, uh, notes written, risk controls, portfolio construction, uh, etc. And then, as I say, performance is one of those five, but it is just one of those five key areas. And within that, we do look at past risk characteristics, style characteristics as well under this this sort of bucket, you know, and that is actually where perhaps we do see some persistence over time. That makes sense, Ian. And thanks for talking us through kind of how you look at things. Maybe you could bring it to life with an example. So I know one of the funds we have at the moment, um, our US equity funds, what we have mm. in our portfolios, has found life a little bit difficult so far this year. Yeah. It is part of a blend, so overall exposure is doing okay. But within that, there's one fund that has had a disappointing start to the year. How do you assess this performance, so one of the P's, against the overall what you're looking for from this manager, from these managers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think perhaps the first thing to say is that we do always seek to blend managers, as you, as you allude to. So that means combining them in complementary ways, you know, because it is unrealistic to think that any one fund will outperform all of the time. Perhaps a classic example to bring it to life is blending a value fund with a growth fund. We, we do this. Uh, it's not uncommon because these styles will, out, will perform very differently to each other over a market cycle. But, but we do believe there are managers in each of those camps that can outperform over the long term. So that being said, we'd actually be concerned if all the funds we employed were outperforming at the same time over the short term, you know, that, that isn't indicative of a good balance, is it, given what I've, what I've said. But drilling down specifically into that one US equity fund that you, you brought up, it, it does have a very strong style bias. And that style has st really struggled this year to date. So the first thing we ask ourselves is, what has changed? And is this period of weak performance to be expected, given our understanding of the fund, and the market conditions. So we lean into our framework, that 5P framework that I mentioned, and we see that the parents, the people, the processes uh, haven't changed. And indeed, we're not surprised to see the weak performance that we've seen this year, given the market conditions. Having said that, we are certainly not complacent. 
and the scale of the weakness has has certainly disappointed us this year from this fund. And so the analyst in my team is keeping especially close dialogue with the fund manager. Now, that's, that's something we can actually easily do, given our credibility and reputation, and making sure that the scores and those five P areas don't uh, don't degrade. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. Actually, the way I think about it, that's not something I can do on my own at home. So good to hear that you have your analyst close and you're using your five P framework. So maybe the final question for today, we've heard about the things that worry you about a fund. What about the reverse? Is there a particular area of the assessment we run where you feel that you get a lot of useful information? Ah, the holy grail. Um, (laughs) Now, yeah, I'm often asked this question and I suppose the short answer is all of the five areas are equally weighted. So in that sense, no one of those areas or no one of those assessments, as you put it, yields particularly useful information you know, above, above another. That said, you're going to push me. So that, that said, the slightly longer answer, and it is my personal view, is that this is a people business. You know, the intellectual property goes up and down in, you know, well, if one's not working from home, up and down in the lifts every day. Now, even quantitative approaches have people designing them, just as qualitative fundamental approaches obviously have fund managers at the helm. And as such, I think one must try to spend as much time as possible understanding the people P of those five P's in particular. Understand and meet the individuals involved. As you as you just mentioned, that's not the easiest to do um, if you haven't got the, the scale and the resources of, of Barclays, not necessarily something you can do from home. But fund management is an art and a science. And so fund buyers, we really need to understand the drivers, the beliefs and the dynamics of the fund managers we're employing and their teams. And perhaps to summarise in a sentence, do we believe they have an edge? Excellent. Well, thank you, Ian. That is very interesting and probably a good place to leave the discussion. So thank you, Ian. Thank you, Will, for talking with us today. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. I look forward to speaking with you all again soon for another Word on the Street. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation. All tax rules can change in the future and their effects depend on your individual circumstances, which can also change. We do not offer personal tax advice. You should obtain this independently if you're unsure. Investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance.